Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Metroscope, an Intercom Portland Public Affairs program. I'm Preston Highfield. Joining us this time on Metroscope is Natalie Wood from Kinship House. Natalie is the new executive director at Kinship House. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for being here. So a brief word about the company at Kinship House. They address the missing piece and services provided to most children touched by foster care and adoption. In addition to significant mental health concerns, these children have been traumatized by a necessary but difficult system. They need to explore the circumstances of their past to prepare for a successful future. Their work helps minimize transitions and increases the chances of children settling into a stable, healthy, and permanent home. Kinship House Outpatient Child and Family Services combine ongoing consultation, therapy, and education. So there we go. And Natalie, thanks again for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So November is Adoption Awareness Month, so it's a pretty timely interview Perfect. For, for us, and it's good to have you in here. So you're new to the to Kinship House, and your posi- or you're new to the position. Can you just tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about what your position is as executive director and why you joined Kinship House? Absolutely. So I came to Kinship House as the executive director in June of this year, so I'm at five months right now. Um, Prior to being at Kinship House, I've spent my career working with youth aging out of foster care um, and kids touched by the foster care system. So about about 20 years doing that. And uh, one of the things I love about being at Kinship House is that the work that we're doing is really stabilizing the kids in their hopefully permanent home so they don't re-enter into the system. So they're not turning 18 and moving out of a system. They're moving potentially out of a home. And uh, that type of prevention work is really exciting for me. Mm-hmm. And so why Kinship House in particular? Hmm, that's a good question. I, I think Kinship House in particular because of the impact that we have. Uh, there's a very real impact. So in my work experience, I've worked with a lot of young adults who have aged out of the system, meaning they turned 18 without a family to call home. So they turned 18 maybe and moved out of a foster home or moved out of a residential placement and didn't have the support network that they needed at 18 and weren't necessarily ready to be a full-blown adult like many of us. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I learned about Kinship House and what was happening there, I just couldn't throw my hat in the ring. Um, The opportunity to provide the services for, you know, a five-year-old today to stabilize that kid in a permanent, healthy, safe home and have that child grow up with all of the supports that that provides and turn 18 from that place is something I had to do. Yeah, it's very admirable work Mm -hmm. for sure. So if we could just dive in a little bit even deeper into Mm kind of who Kinship House is, what it's about, and then some of those challenges that you mentioned that the youth face being in their current situation and how Kinship House helps with those challenges. Sure, yeah. So Kinship House has been around for 22 years. It was established in 1996 by five therapists in the field that recognized a need. Um, And since then, we have been serving children and families that are involved in the foster care system 
um, that are moving towards permanency. So kids that are being adopted, kids that are returning home, or kids that are living with a relative on a permanent basis. And we provide the you know mental health supports and the familial supports and skill building to make sure that they have everything they need to be successful into the future. So, you know, the kids that we're working with are kids that have been in the foster care system. So they're kids that have experienced pretty significant abuse and neglect, often at a very young age. And that, um, you know, early abuse and neglect can really change the way a child's brain functions and can change the way a child relates to the world around them. So we approach each of our clients with an attachment lens, um, really focusing on making sure that the child is able to attach in a healthy way to their caregiver, whoever that may be for the future, and that the caregivers themselves have all the skills they need to um, appropriately respond when a child is having a trauma response. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times, you know, little ones that have experienced significant trauma will have some significant challenges in their behavior. And so providing the skills and the support that is needed to you know, help those families move through that. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of at the base level, just for folks out there to understand who aren't super familiar with foster care mm-hmm. and the system and everything. So why do these kids enter the foster care system in the first place? <clears throat> yeah. So the kids come into the foster care system when the you know, Department of Human Services, DHS, has been notified that there is, is abuse or neglect happening in the home. So they're kids that are Um, it's been deemed by the state that they are not safe to remain in their home and are placed in foster care, so in a a foster home. Uh, As they move through that process, it is, you know, there's a process called permanency where the the caseworker and all of the supports in the child's life are really trying to identify where can this child be in a permanent way that is safe for them. And sometimes that's with biological parents, sometimes that's with adoptive parents, sometimes that's with a a family member, like a grandma or an aunt or mm-hmm. uncle or something. Mm-hmm. And you, so you mentioned kind of, you know, neglect and mm-hmm. these uh, traumatizing situations that mm-hmm. may occur, um, abuse, abusive situations mm-hmm. that may occur. What are kind of all of the different challenges that foster care kids can face, um, you know, with, with probably mm-hmm. those and then maybe some others as well? Yeah. So, like I mentioned, you know, early abuse and neglect definitely changes brain development for a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they can have a harder time than their peers in having healthy relationships with safe adults in their lives because they haven't been taught that adults can be safe in their lives. And so that's some of the teaching we do. So <clears throat> the outcome of that is um, oftentimes some behavioral challenges, some mental health issues that need to be addressed and supported. Um, Some of the other things that are barriers for the kids in the foster care system are there's oftentimes a lot of disruption in placement. So if, for example, a a four-year-old that has had significant abuse since he was six months old comes into care, uh, that four-year-old's going to have pretty significant behavioral challenges. And the four-year-old, likely, the four-year-old is placed Mm -hmm. in a foster home and maybe that foster home isn't prepared to deal with those significant challenges. So then that four-year-old's placed in another foster home, maybe a therapeutic foster home that has the skills to support that kiddo. And that's already three moves and, you know, we'll say a six-month period. And then maybe it's, you know, decided that parental rights are going to be terminated because that kid is not going to be safe going home. And then they're looking for an adoptive family. And so that's another move. And every time a child is moved from home to home, 
it's disruptive, it's um, destabilizing, and you know studies have shown that that is trauma in and of itself for the mm-hmm. kids. Yeah, so especially with people so young, I mean, that's just heartbreaking to hear about, obviously. Mm-hmm. What are the different ways that you guys even kind of approach starting to, to deal with these kids, um, you know, to try to help them out and help them through the traumatic times that they're in? Yeah, so... Our clinicians um, work with each individual child and their family unit and their support systems um, in a very individualistic way. We have a a lot of different modalities that we employ um, because we're working with a wide range in ages of kids and development. Um, So we have, you know, therapeutic approaches for kids that have their trauma experiences prior to language acquisition so they can put words to what happened to them and tell their story and understand that and move through it. Um, that's a big part of it is helping the kids understand and tell their story so they can move past that. Um, a lot of what we do is really focusing on that child and caregiver relationship to build a healthy, stable, and successful bond there. So as they move through the you know upcoming years, they're able to process through difficult times together in a way that's symbiotic. Um, you know, raising your raising any child is a hard task for sure. You know, mm-hmm. there's things that come up that are hard and you move through and then raising a child that has a extensive trauma history is even harder. So, you know, we, we approach the family unit in that way as well. Mm-hmm. And so just to kind of share your, your guys's work and your approach and mm-hmm. kind of how it all starts. So you guys are, are, are you guys consult with, with these kids and the, their families, is that correct? Or how does the mm-hmm. interaction kind of start with you guys oh. and the kids? So we provide outpatient mental health therapy. So uh-huh. the child is our primary client. And we're doing an intensive one-on-one individual mental health therapy with the child. And we do that through play therapy and drama therapy and sand tray therapy and talk therapy and a lot of different modalities. Um, another big part and uh, you know, one thing that I think makes Kinship House stand out is that we provide a lot of ongoing support and um, you know, work with the family unit itself. Uh, and, you know, try and provide the adults in the child's life with the information they need to support the kid, with the skills that they may need to support that child. But the child is our primary client. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's good to know. Um, and then, so November, National mm-hmm. Adoption Awareness Month, like we were talking about earlier. And on your website, it says, while all adoption-related issues are important, the particular focus of this month mm-hmm. is the adoption of children currently in foster care. Could mm-hmm. you just kind of speak to that effort? Yeah. So in in the Multnomah County area, there's usually about 2,500 kids at any point in time in the foster care system. At Kinship House, we serve uh, about 500 kids annually. So there is a great need um, for services for these kids. There's a great need for permanent loving homes for the kids too. Um, and a, a lot of kids end up being in a position where they are looking for an adoptive home. Um, it's not safe for them to go home with their biological family for one reason or another, and they need a permanent home. Um, and a, in my experience working with uh, youth that have aged out of foster care, there's just not enough adoptive homes for the number of kids that need them. And so Adoption Awareness Month is really to you know get the word out there that if if you're someone that has the skill set and the willingness and the ability and the space to bring someone into your family, there's a true need, and that there are services available to support those families and to help them be successful. Mm-hmm. And then to localize this, I mean, as far as 
your guys' efforts in Oregon and where it's relevant to the current foster care situation in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Can you just kind of describe what even what the current foster care situation is in Oregon and then how you guys are, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, efforting uh, these different, uh, I guess, practices that you do to help help these kids out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I think I think with nationally, I would say there is a greater need than there are resources. And Oregon has seen that um, pretty directly in the last few years. Our child welfare system has been in a, a state of flux. There's been a lot of change in leadership. It's a very large bureaucratic system with a lot of responsibility around safety um, for children. It's a it's a big load to carry. Um, so as a, a partner with DHS, we work really closely with the caseworker on each case to advocate for and make sure that the kids' mental health and the kids' stability and safety maintains a number one priority. We do a lot of work in the court systems, testifying um, at court to make sure that the child's voice is heard there. Um, So our interactions with the child welfare system are really around advocacy as a child moves through that system to make sure that doing everything we can to make sure that child is, you know, supported through the transitions that are inherently going to happen in the kiddo's life and that they have what they need for those transitions and that the trauma of disruption is as minimal as possible. Um, but, yeah, it's a it's a large system with a big responsibility. Mm-hmm. And you pointed out there, if I'm remembering correctly in that answer, that Oregon is feeling the effects of uh, what is nationally basically us not being able to come up with enough homes for these mm-hmm. foster kids. Do you have, I don't know, I mean, I don't know if you have numbers off the top of your mm-hmm. head, but is there any is there any way to kind of put into context where Oregon sits in kind of the, the big scheme of this? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, the I'm no, totally putting you on, yeah, the, spot. Putting me on to- the spot. Totally um, putting you on the spot. You would get the, an A plus <laughs> plus if you find a way to answer this question. <laughs> yeah, I know that in the Portland metro area, it, like the average point in time count is 2,500 kids, but that's just the Portland metro okay. area. I'm not aware of what the the average state number is, um, but I do know from my like you know individualized experience, there are a lot of kids that. Um, end up in congregate care, so residential settings, or in respite care, which is like a temporary foster home, um, that are not there due to any issue that that child is having. They're not necessarily there because they're having behavioral issues or anything like that. They're there because there isn't anywhere else for them to be. Um, You know, one thing that has come up in the media over the last several months is the hoteling of kids or kids staying in DHS offices because there's literally nowhere else for them to go. And so kids were, um, you know, staying in hotels for way longer than they should. They, in my opinion, shouldn't be there at all. Mm -hmm. Um, Kids should have a home to go to. Uh, At Kinship House, there's like one young man that we work with, I think he has you know, been staying in a hotel going on a couple months now. Um, and he's nine. A nine-year-old wow. shouldn't be in a hotel for a couple mm-hmm. months. And that is not to say that DHS is at fault for that, but there is just a lack of homes for these kids to go to. No, I think you answered that perfectly. And I think it's, I think people out there listening, especially locally, just want to have mm-hmm. some kind of idea where the community sits and all this. Mm-hmm. How does that, I mean, how does that happen? How does... Yeah, how, I guess that's the most basic way to ask that. How is a, how is a nine-year-old staying in a hotel for months at a time? Yeah, that, and, you know, to be fair, that case is an anomaly. Uh-huh. Most nine-year-olds are not in a hotel for months at a time. Um, 
But I think how that happens is, in this case particular, since I brought that child up, um, he's a kiddo that has, does have very extensive trauma history. Uh, he does have some pretty intense behavioral challenges due to his trauma history. Um, if you met him today, he's a great kid. You're a sports guy. He plays uh, basketball with okay. his therapist every time he comes in. Awesome. Um, he's a very cool little dude. Um, but one thing that his trauma taught him is that as soon as you think an adult is safe, you need to put your guard up because that's when you're going to get hurt. That's what he's learned his entire life. Mm. And so for that young man, you know, he was placed in a foster home. And as soon as he started to feel comfortable there and as soon as he thought, oh, I think these people are safe for me, that's the rewiring of the brain I was talking about, right? Like his brain learned, if you think these people are safe, you need to be careful because you are not safe. And so then his behaviors escalate because of course they would. At the time, he's a seven-year-old kid who is terrified that he's not safe, and so he's going to act out. And so he had disrupted placement after disrupted placement because mm -hmm. of that pattern. Mm -hmm. And so that's what that's you know kind of to bring it back. That's what we do at Kinship Houses. We really work in depth and in intensive therapy with these kids to change that thinking process, so they are able to say, "I'm in a safe home. This is a safe person." we're going to move through some hard stuff together and I'm still going to be safe and not mm -hmm. have the um, reactive response to their previous trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's really well said. And you brought up basketball too, which hey. I, I, I like. And I mean, a lot, no, seriously, a lot of young kids out there, sports is a great way out or a great escape for them. Mm -hmm. What are, I mean, maybe that's an example or what are some examples of kind of either therapy? I think people mm -hmm. with listening would maybe want to know like how exactly you guys work with the kids, whether yeah. it's, Playing with them in a classroom or mm -hmm. letting them run on the playground or taking them through different, uh, you know, academic tests, perhaps, or what, you know, yeah. I, what can you maybe just throw out an example of how you kind of work with some of these kids? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's one thing that I am asked often, of, you know, we think of therapy as talk therapy where, you mm -hmm. know, like I, I sit on a couch and I tell you my feelings and you help me process them. And if you're three, you can't do that. Right. Um, or if you can. Wow. Um, so we we have a, a ton of different approaches we use with the kids. At, um, our our organization is set into Victorian houses, and all of the rooms in the house are clinical therapy rooms. So um, we have several play therapy rooms, and what that looks like when you walk in, it looks like a child's bedroom but without a bed. So there's toys, there's a dollhouse, there's dress-up clothes, there's all kinds of different um, toys to play with there, and. What the clinicians will do is, you know, welcome the kid into the room and they get to play. And as the child plays, it's very instructive for the therapist about what's going on for that child, especially when you're looking at things like a dollhouse. You know, they're acting things out. And so asking exploratory questions about what are you, what what is the mom doing here and what is the dad and who is this person that came? Mm -hmm. And um, talking with them about what they're playing is a real, is a great way for kids to externalize their trauma and their story and learn how to tell it without becoming re-traumatized. So play therapy is one example. Um, art therapy, we have two art rooms where kids can just create. And that, again, is a great way to engage in conversation. That's with the older kiddos. Um, the younger set, you know, like kids that have experienced um, pre-verbal acquisition trauma, um, one of the modalities we use is sand tray therapy. So um, if you think about a 11-month-old knows what a bottle is. They know, like, they, they, know, they know what a bottle is. Mm -hmm. They don't know the word for bottle, but they know what a bottle is. 
And so taking that idea and extending it to a therapeutic setting, um, we have sand trays and a ton of miniatures on the wall is what we call them, so tiny toys. And so a small child can look at all these tiny toys, and there's everything from monsters to angels to policemen to families to buildings, every little miniature we can imagine. And they're able to recognize what they know, even if they don't have the word for it. And that's a way that we are able to communicate with kids, um, even kids that are able to you know, talk, but kids that don't have the words they need to talk about the trauma they've experienced, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Totally. Um, and another another approach that we're really diving into is child parent psychotherapy, which I am not an expert on, um, but that is a, a didactic approach where we're looking at you know working with the caregiver and the child, and that's from you know as young as infancy um, to have experience with you know, providing the experience for the parent and the child or the caregiver and the child to practice connection and attachment together, which, you know, changes the neural pathways in the child's brain. Uh So if a kid has six months of practice that a caregiver relationship is going to be scary or hurtful, we take the time to do practice of it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that those are all great examples. I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the challenges that you guys are facing, whether mm-hmm. that's funding or otherwise? Hmm. As far as our funding goes, our, you know, because we are, like I said, our primary client is the child. And so we um, are funded through insurance billing for all of the intervention with the child. And that covers about 80%, 70 to 80% of our costs as an organization. Um, The mission of Kinship House from the very beginning was that we are going to provide the services that are needed for the families to be successful. Not all of those services are billable. Um, So the, uh, a lot of times the, you know, working with the child's treatment team, so their DHS caseworker, their attorney, their CASA, um, all those folks, that those hours that our clinicians are doing that work and sharing that information is not always billable hours, but uh-huh. it's very, very important for the child's future that we do those things. Um, and, you know, some of the support work that we do with the families, uh, you know, we have no funding for that, but it's our mission because we know that if we give the child all the skills and the tools that they need, but they're still in an environment where they can't use those tools then we haven't done our job. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Makes sense. Okay, so listeners out there who want to become more engaged in helping with foster care and adopting children or even just learn more about it before mm-hmm. they kind of enter the whole process of that, um, what would you suggest they do? If they want to be a foster parent? Or if they want to just, just learn, learn more about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just do it already. Just do yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so as far as learning more about Kinship House and what we do, we are on social media, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and our you know website really outlines all of the services that we provide. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of wonderful organizations that are recruiting and training and screening foster parents. Um, I would say definitely connect with those folks. That's not what we do. Um, but once you are a foster parent we can come in and help. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so that's how kinship gets involved then from that point. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, cool. Uh, well, just another minute or so here. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you, you want to hit on at all? I mean, you've done a great job kind of informing everyone uh, kind of what Kinship House is all about and how people can get involved. Mm-hmm. It sounds like go to their go to their website. And do you guys have any events coming up or anything that you'd like to talk about there? We just had our annual event. The next one will be next October. Okay. Um, and it's a really fun event, but that's kind of a far way away. Yeah. <laughs> um, we do uh, annually, we do a Arkin mini golf event for the families that we serve and kids in foster care. Um, and if people were interested in volunteering for that event, um, all the contact information is on our website. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, I would just say that the you know, kids in our community, there's some kids that are really suffering and really need the adults to step up for them. And they are kids that have had the unfortunate experience of having adults in their lives that weren't able to do that for one reason or another. And uh, for those of us that are able to step up for the kids and be, you know, in whatever way a support for those kids, whether that's financially, whether that's with our time as volunteers, or whether that's with, you know, accepting a kid into our home as a respite foster care provider or an adoptive parent. Um, I would just really encourage people to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, Natalie Wood, thank you so much for coming in here. It was, it was fun to chat with you, and yeah. thanks for all you do. You guys are definitely a, you know, a great resource and a great program for the community, so we appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We were talking today with Natalie Wood, Executive Director at Kinship House. Metroscope is an Intercom Public Portland Affairs program. I'm Preston Highfield. If you're involved with a nonprofit or public affairs organization, or if you have an idea for an upcoming show, I'd like to hear from you. Visit MetroscopePDX.com and submit your ideas. You can also go to this station's website and submit your information there. Thanks for listening to Metroscope and enjoy the rest of your weekend. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.